To ship, of course. It's that time again. Time for the ship show, where we talk about build engineering, DevOps, release management, and everything in between. I am your host, J. Paul Reed. J. Paul Reed on the Twitter sphere and jpaulreed.com. Who's with me uh, this spring evening for episode 16? It's uh, EJ Saramella, uh, E. Saramella on Twitter. And this is Yusuf, at Gold Scientist on Twitter and GoldScientist.com. And this is Seth, Cheese Plus, just about everywhere. This is Pete, at Pete Chesslock on Twitter. This is uh, Mike McGar, at Son of Gar on Twitter. And this is Catherine Daniels, Beer Ops on Twitter, and I blog at Bureau.ps. Wow, we have a very full house tonight. It's it's very nice. How is everyone doing? It's been a while since we've had this full house. Long time. Oh. It's awesome. It's like, it's like Fuller House. Oof. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Yay. <laughs> what have you all been up to? Vacation. Oh, yeah. There you go. That's important. Parenting. What's that like? <laughs> I, do, I don't know what vacationing is like, really, to be fair, just because I've spent like at least three of the days maintaining open source repos. And I was like, <laughs> that really I was vacation? Just, right. I was just like, I was just like, oh, shit. Like, this is what I'm doing on my vacation time. This That's is definitely the worst form of vacation possible. <laughs> well, like, I, this is vaguely familiar. Well, then I follow up with, a lot like, like work. 20, 20 hours of gaming after that. Is, oh, that's good. Okay, I, that it's, it's, it, it's an extreme. Yeah, I, I have to I have to at least do a little bit of work. Or not work, but, you know, PRs need some love. <laughs> All right, well, for uh, episode 60, we are sitting down with a panel to speak with Dr. Christina Maslach. That name is familiar. She uh, spoke on the topic of burnout at Velocity and did a panel there on the topic of burnout. And so we will be talking about what burnout is, how to combat it, um, some strategies and techniques to both detect it and deal with it. But uh, before that, first up, as we have always done, news and views. First up on news and views, we've got, I guess, Google and Netflix announced Spinnaker. Spinnaker. Mike, what is Spinnaker? What is what is this thing? Yeah, so Spinnaker is, is our global continuous delivery platform. It is the successor to Asgard. And so we just open sourced it in, I guess, November or December. And what's notable is it deprecated Asgard. And I think also, Paul, you made a comment earlier that, that Spinnaker was unique in that Netflix developed it in collaboration with Google so that... Yeah. When, Net, when Spinnaker was released, it worked with both AWS, Google Cloud. And then there's also been some other partnerships that have been evolving since then. So I think Cloud, Cloud Foundry for Pivotal has evolved. And I, there's also, um, I think there's more coming as well. Oh, nice. You know, I was just actually noticing that I, I was looking at the, the site is spinnaker.io. Uh, I was noticing, it's kind of funny, actually, it's in the quick reference tab, the AMI ID table, and it's got all of the AMIs in all of the uh, AWS zones, and then they've got a link to the Google Cloud Launcher as well. But it's like, you can bring this all up really quickly, right? I mean, that's all the AMIs are there ready to go. Like, that's pretty, pretty awesome. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That is very cool. I love how you say it's the global continuous delivery, like it's the global overlords of continuous delivery. The global leader in continuous <laughs> delivery. <laughs> well, you know, it's, you've got, you got to sell it a little bit, right? Oh, yeah. No, no, I like it. I like it. Now, here's my question. Is this, uh, you know, House of Cards just came out this weekend. Is this how it, did it go through this continuous delivery pipeline? Um, no spoilers. No spoilers. <laughs> no spoilers. Yeah, probably not. Probably not. Um, no, I mean, all the most of our web services that are deployed to AWS are going to be deployed through Spinnaker. 
arguably the bits that you're watching when you're streaming are going to our Open Connect boxes, which are pops around the um, all the ISPs. So mm-hmm. Spinnaker probably not very little to do with those. So, so yeah, those are much... those are the those are the machines that uh, Comcast throttles on purpose, right? <laughs> no comment. <laughs> so this this powers the list of movies that I keep adding to that I never go back and actually exactly <laughs> exactly awesome. every every angry comment you leave about a movie or, or review is uh, powered by Spinnaker. No, I just the only comments I leave are to to make sure that Caliu cannot be watched by my daughter on <laughs> I've I've got magical uh, lists where things pop in and out because I change regions so often. So I have like oh. I have lists now that are like composite between all the regions because some titles are available globally. So I'm actually finding interesting consistency differences in all the regions. So yeah, it's it's kind of interesting to see how that's working. Yeah, I imagine you've got to you got to explore some of the uh, the new 130 countries we we uh, launched in. Did you get yeah, to Yeah, I've done I've done think uh, 15 now. So at least or, or for for at least Netflix. Um, yeah, it's interesting. It's interesting the shows that I can watch in other countries that I can't watch in the states because of licensing. Yep. Yes. Yep. So I ran in, I ran into that when I went to Sweden and uh, I was wanting to watch Downton Abbey and because I hadn't watched I heard it's a really good show but I hadn't watched it from the beginning and it was on the list that you can watch but I realized with the accents I was going to need the subtitles to pick up everything they were saying even though it's, it's English but it, it's heavily accented and I found out that in Sweden which makes sense you could only get Swedish and Finnish and Danish subtitles so wah wah and then you can't get it in the US it's not it's not a thing you can have so but you probably have more experience mental data stuff of, of like which you <laughs> yeah it's it's just it's been weird about like the shows that you know are like syndicated and on TV here that you can't actually easily watch on Netflix I think <laughs> I think the one I think the one that I run into that I always forget is is like Brooklyn Nine Nine you can't actually watch it on Netflix in the United States so I basically only watch it when I'm out of the country <laughs> <laughs> it's it's even though it's a US TV show but yeah licensing how does it work. Yeah, no, it's funny too. I, I've actually learned this lesson. This is a good thing. Well, like if you're traveling, you can't you get into a Netflix show because it's going to be available everywhere, right? Uh, don't get into some other show that isn't isn't necessarily Netflix created because you you'll go across the pond and you won't be able to watch it. And you'll be like, oh, it's just getting so good. This or invest in a VPN, which is what I've done. So it's like I want to watch shh, British shh, Netflix. Today. Yeah, no, shh, shh, no, no. Yeah, 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 yeah. I can't hear you. <laughs> I can't hear you. <laughs> quiet, quiet. Okay. <laughs> Anyone we, tried Spinnaker? Oh, I tried no. reading docs. No, I'm just yeah, kidding. I, I didn't read the docs. It actually looks really interesting, just because you know it uses a lot of the same. Bits that we're using with you know the Packer CloudFormation and all this other stuff. So yeah, so I just need to like spend some time with it because it looks really awesome. I've, I've totally been looking at it, but I also given given that we're playing around with our own you know CI CD tool, it's it's not high on my list unfortunately. But I want to. <laughs> it's actually something I want to use for a particular project. But I'm you know we have we obviously have reasons to like use our own stuff, which is of course you know. You know, drink, drink your own champagne. Yes, <laughs> yeah, that's 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 one of the things it's called. Um, yeah, Rapid Seven, we've used Asgard for the last four years. 
for better or for worse. And uh, we were very anxiously looking at Spinnaker, and we'll probably end up rolling that out in the next few months. I'm more curious, like, as you rolled out Spinnaker, did you have to re-educate people? It's pretty trivial to do a rolling push through Asgard right now, and I'm just curious if you found that there were pockets of people in Netflix maybe not using the best approach for certain things? Yeah, I mean, uh, the the rollout of Spinnaker took a while because arguably the, the, the approaches we took for the UI and how we abstracted certain AWS assets is a little different than Asgard, so there is some re-education there. What also internal customers who used, we had an internal tool called Mir, which was arguably the predecessor to the pipelines portion, our continuous delivery pipelines. And we had to migrate people off of Mimir, um, make sure we had feature compatibility with Mimir for the, for the, uh, the, the pipeline stuff. So there's definitely a, a slow adoption curve. Um, there's still some applications that are, have yet to fully migrate internally, but we are we're probably at the last like one or two percent at this yeah, point. Yeah, just e- even over the last four years, like we showed them the rolling push and said like only in case of emergency or uh, you know if it's a real real small small change. But more often than not, you find somebody is like trivializing something that shouldn't have been and has done a rolling push. Um, but noticing that in Spinnaker it says rolling pushes are deprecated and. And we haven't gotten so far as to figure out if that means it won't work for a particular use case or it's frowned upon or I don't know if you had to walk through teams there too. So yeah, definitely I think it'll be interesting to see what the migration path is for people that have really invested in Asgard and how they have to replicate those things in Spinnaker. So yeah, we'll have to... Yeah, so the, the advantage of, just the final note there, the advantage of migrating, if you use Asgard, is that it should be, there's almost no migration just from getting people used to the new user interface. Yeah. Spinnaker and Asgard can run side by side. Oh, nice. Nice. Cool. Well, next up we have uh, 10 things, something from the, the developer blog over at Red Hat, uh, 10 things to avoid in Docker containers. Uh, we'll link to it in the show notes. I wanted to talk about this a little bit because I think one of the things we're seeing this year more and more, and this is an example of that, is the realization that Docker containers aren't magic. And so there's a lot of like really good advice, but also sort of come to Jesus moments, if you will, around the limitations um, or, or things that have been sort of papered over in uh, Docker and, and such. So we wanted to link to this. Uh, some of the things aren't super, you know, they're like, well, of course you wouldn't do that. I, one of my favorite ones was like, uh, don't don't run processes as root, which kind of reminded me, actually, remember when the first iPhone came out and the, all the web browser stuff was running as the root user on the phone? It's like, yeah, that's that's fail. You know, it's um, funny because you mentioned about how, like, it's a great post for people because of this should be all obvious, right? Right. But, but yet, this is all the stuff that, like, you just see all the time. It's the know? thing you'll f- up 101, right? Like, do not run more than one process in a single container. But yet, I always hear people talking about, like, oh, like, what's the super, like, what's the uh, process supervisor you're using inside of Docker container? And I'm like, good lord, you're doing it wrong. That is <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I also like the other one, don't create large images. It's like, Containers, they're, they're supposed to be, like, that was a whole thing. Small, isolated, and it's like, it's not an AMI, right? But, but you know, I mean, here's the thing. It, it, it is a fundamentally different way of thinking about infrastructure. So, I mean, I sort of get the, like, we need to have the kind of hand-holdy, these are the, these are the preconceived notions that you're going to have to challenge. Pete, so. you had tweeted, I think, a while back, a great image. I think it was you, and I don't know if you were on a train or 
something. You know what I'm talking about? A great picture of containers. And you, you mentioned something about maintaining state or data in a, in a, in a container. Was, uh, that was great. I was at a restaurant and oh. we got sat at this table and it was actually like a, a meetup of like operations people that we were just like go and grab a, a drink after those of us who have children are in bed. Like we'll meet up at a local bar and, and grab some food and a drink. And as we sat down behind us was a picture of, of like the, the Burlington train line which is like in Massachusetts I guess a long time ago like in this horrific train crash of like freight cars and I just was like sitting at the table and I just pointed at it and I was like stateful containers just a mess of like freight cars like bent around each other and stuff like that <laughs> I did I will link to this I did actually tweet the other day an architectural diagram uh, this is actually another anti-pattern you sort of see where you, you have microservices in your in your Docker containers or your containers and, and that's all great but they're interdependent in ways they shouldn't be um, and I posted a architectural diagram of that in fact I think Catherine if you didn't see it you would like it in particular but we'll link to both of those in the show notes uh, next up we have actually a couple of well sad items sad isn't just not sad sad but like depressing sad although the, one of them is is actually interesting Libra SSL was unaffected by drown which is another open SSL bug um, we'll link to the article in the show notes. I wanted to talk about it because I think this is the first example of an OpenSSL bug that Libra SSL is not affected by. So it's sort of like kind of proof in the pudding that Libra SSL has is you know all the work they did is paying off. Did you see? Did you see Drown? Did you see Libra SSL was not affected we're, by? We're drowned, drowned in, drowned in the security. Um, yeah. So what was interesting too with this one is that actually Ubuntu was not vulnerable to this as well because they had stopped compiling SSL v2 support for a, a while, which I thought was pretty interesting that they kind of fixed the glitch on the, the build <laughs> side of things. Right. And I always rage about how Ubuntu, like why do they need to have their own essentially forked version of the package? And that one day I was like, oh, okay, now nah, you're cool. You're cool. <laughs> there, was talk, there was a talk, actually, what I wanted to say was that there was a talk that I, I watched at LastCon, the Lone Star Application Security Conference, literally the only security conference that I've, I've ever actually attended. And the the talk was by Nick Galbraith, who was like ex-Etsy and is at Signal Sciences now. And he basically talked about how code quality is a actually a security issue and code cleanliness and readability. Oh, yeah. And he talked about it. Was, it was great. And I've been actually waiting for those videos to come up. It's, it's been months now, so I'm assuming they're never going to come up. But so one of great, the things I think they is... They taught how they refactored just, like, followed a single style guide for the whole project. Right. And were able to, like, reduce the number of bugs, like, dramatically just in that, like, one change. Yeah, so I think one of the things that gets overlooked a lot of the times with OpenSSL, and there's no nice way to say this, is that as an open source project, it was managed like a total sh the release engineering where they're releasing different things with the same version numbers. Um, I mean, and the, the, apparently the backstory on OpenSSL is basically way back in the day it was somebody's thesis on cryptography, and then everybody was like, well, I have a PhD thesis. I'll throw my algorithms in there, right? And there was no sort of like, you should never ever use, like, you shouldn't have the, these ciphers shouldn't even be available in production because they're not, you know, they're not proven or any of this stuff. And and so it was the, the, this, this one, of the, one of these things where like the community and the management of the project directly contributed to, to this. And I think a lot of times we, we gloss over that. 
in ways that are harmful because they, they result in poor code quality. The one thing I did want to mention that the article points out that um, Libra SSL should actually be entirely compatible with OpenSSL. So like you should be able to just use it and have a drop-in replacement work. It says the main exceptions are the cases where programs use insecure functions that were removed or require bug compatibility with OpenSSL. And that's just like if your application requires either of those, you something is wrong. Like you should you should <laughs> fix that and moved uh, Libra SSL. I think the worst part of this OpenSSL bug was was mainly that it was like a, a side channel attack, I guess. I don't even know if that's the right term. But basically, like, you could have some of the best SSL configuration. Your client could be extremely secure. But if, if the site you're visiting has SSL v2 enabled, then your communications are can be intercepted. Which means, right. and this is actually the thing where I think it's it's of the kind of as bad as, you know, Heartbleed, but mm-hmm. is going to get less press just because, like, the press doesn't care anymore. They've heard this, like, the end of the world's happening again. But for the number of sites that likely still have SSL v2 on, even though you're connected and you could even test the site and make sure, but, like, are you really going to test all these sites to make sure they don't have SSL v2 turned on? So... I think that's probably the most, uh, as someone, again, who's like the front row to the Armageddon in, in all of these security vulnerabilities, I always go like, wow, like, like there's just, I got nothing now. Like, every other day, it's just like, oh, got nothing left on this one. Well, to your point. With the internet. Yeah, exactly. It, it's funny you say that, right, too, because the, the press, like, they don't, re- you're right, they don't report these because it's like, yes, OpenSSL is a burning tire fire and we all know that. Let's move on. And so when stuff like this comes out that actually is as bad as Heartbleed, it's like, yep, we, yep, we know. But of course, let's not take any engineering effort to move to Libra SSL because whatever, YOLO. I, this is why I, I love, you know, working in your industry, Pete, because you just see this stuff and you're just like, I, don't, I can't even anymore. I have no evens I can anymore. <laughs> so relatedly, actually, Catherine reminded us about the GLibc vulnerability. Catherine, tell us about the sadness there. That took the world by storm a couple weeks ago. So much sadness. So <laughs> from what I understand, there's something in GLibc that's DNS-related, um, uh, some sort of buffer overflow in get host by name and get host by name to something about malicious DNS packets can be crafted that can then come along and do bad things to your servers. Just just go patch your glibc. Updates have been out for a while now. Install them. Reboot your servers. Everyone will be happy again until, like, next week when we have to do this all over again because of the next OpenSSL bug. Right. Yeah, I was uh, chatting with someone about this glibc problem, and it's funny. I, I had actually forgotten it, so thank you for bringing it up and reminding us. And, of course, glibc is one of those, you know, such a foundational thing. But, Pete, to your point about project management and this idea that, you know, this bug had been around for quite a while. It, it might have even been an original bug, you know, when it was originally coded. And what I thought was very interesting about the way this played out is people were like, well, it's the so many eyes problem. You know, we have so many eyes in open source, all the bugs become shallow. And of course, that's been sort of debunked anyway. But I was thinking about, you know, the, the, this aspect of community that you brought up. Pete, and one of the glibc maintainers, I guess Ulrich Drupper, had a reputation for just being an asshole to like everyone all the time, constantly. And I was thinking about that being a liability in an open source project because this this notion that we have lots of eyeballs, people leave projects because they don't want to put up with horse like that. And we see it in the Linux kernel. We we see it in I think we would see it in glibc. I I think we would see it in other places. So it's almost one of these things where it's like. 
you know, the whole it's nice to be nice thing or being nice in the context of an open source project, it's it's actually about, it's got this weird intersectionality with code quality and, and bug detection and that sort of thing. Yeah, I mean, if people are not willing to contribute because you're not a, a good person to, to work with, they're just going to go off and do their own thing. I think the whole lever SSL split too is a huge example. Like there's there's no reason that those changes can't be brought into the what we would essentially be mainline open SSL, other than human reasons, like people reasons. Right. And it's a people bug. Yeah, it's yeah. it's far people more of a people no. bug. Exactly. So yeah, it's painful to see those things. I mean, I don't know. It's like computers aren't hard. It's like people are hard. That's like yeah. we already know that, right? So right, right, is, right. This is basically like human humans breaking down, and this is like the result of that happening. Yeah. The other thing I thought was interesting is is the, this bug brought up kind of the to the point about the Libra SSL thing. This brought up the there's a lot of actually glibc replacements that are for like embedded and stuff like that. And and this idea we hit it with GCC too, where people were like, you know what, like. Clang and LVM are easier to maintain and add features to and and code uh, than like GCC was and and same thing glibc's been around a long time it's great you know whatever but like these other libc's that that were re-implementations are more secure and easier to deal with and you know are we going to see a move away from glibc because of stuff like this it's interesting to consider last up tonight we've got uh, well we have elk stack not sadness Catherine tell us about the the elk stack not sadness yeah. Yeah, so something that I've been working on a bit recently with some of my awesome colleagues, Aveline Vig and Ryan France mostly, has been some utilities for dealing with ELK clusters, so Elasticsearch, Logstash, Kibana. One thing that we put together is a little script that you might find handy if you have to, you know, reboot your entire ELK cluster to deal with a glibc vulnerability. Why would you have to reboot your entire cluster? Yes. Yeah, who would have (laughs) to? Yes. (laughs) <laughs> but if you wanted to do that without downtime, so Elasticsearch lets you make API calls to change per index which nodes are included and excluded for that index, which is great. So that you, you can be like, okay, for you know today's index, if you're indexing by date, I want to remove this one node. But if you have 30 indices on a node and you want to take that node out of the cluster kind of cleanly, that's 30 API calls that you have to make. So I figured, you know, this is a problem that is solvable by computers and put together this little utility to cleanly evacuate all the indices from a given node so you can take it out from maintenance, uh, whether that be, you know, hardware maintenance or rebooting it to patch something like this. And then to, again, re-evacuate uh, invacuate, I think is actually the word. That's a real word I learned. Invacuate. Invacuate. Invacuate the indices back to that node and put it back in the cluster, which saved us, you know, countless hours. So we open sourced it, hoping that, you know, somebody else might ha- run into this as well and it might save them some time. Cool. Well, we will link to it uh, on GitHub. You can clone it and use it there. We will link to it in the show notes. It's kind of like a, it's a mini tooltip, but sounds like it was very related to the, uh, the again, the glibc that would never have the the bug that you, you never. never have to read, never. I will say what's what's very awesome about that tool, just from looking at it, is I also manage a large Elasticsearch cluster. Then there's a there's an API endpoint that I've used before, which is like the exclude allocation thing, where you basically like turn off allocation for a node. And you think you're like, oh, cool, I totally want that to get all these shards off this node. The problem is, is it will move all the shards off at that one time, which is a lot of data transfer and a lot of I.O. that you probably yeah. don't want at one time. So seeing this looks awesome because I've yet to find a 
way to actually very carefully be like, I just want to move like a couple at a time. Like time, time's okay. I don't want to be like, hey, move twelve hundred shards right now. Boom, boom. Don't, don't, don't rebalance that ring right now. <laughs> One of the things that I've been meaning to open source, and maybe this will be the kick in the pants that I need to do that, is uh, some of the functions that we've hooked into our IRC cat to deal with this. So one of them is you can set how many rebalances are able to go on at any given time from IRC. So instead of having to like go type out a thing, you just tell IRC cat to do it. So if you realize that the cluster is starting to fall over, you can just be like, how about a little less rebalancing for now? Nice That's stuff. cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, okay, we're going to hold you to it. You said you were going to open source it. All right, all right. Hold me to it. <laughs> all right, next up, Dr. Christina Maslach and talk about burnout here on the show. Welcome back to The Ship Show. I'm your host, Paul Rizzo. Tonight, we have a very interesting guest joining us, Dr. Christine Maslach, who's a researcher and professor at Berkeley. And um, her background is in burnout and the issue of burnout in various industries and issues related to burnout and how it affects organizations and people. Welcome to The Ship Show, Dr. Maslach. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. So I wanted to start with, I think burnout is a term that people throw around a lot from time to time. You know, they might say jokingly, oh, you know, I'm really burnt out right now, or it might be, you know, kind of a hallway conversation about burnout. But burnout has kind of a, a technical definition, does it not? It, it it's does. More, let's start there. Like, what is burnout specifically, or the specifics? From the, from the specifics, yes. Uh, you're right. I mean, it's a term that... I I think because it is not a technical word, I mean, it was really language of the people who came up with saying, this is how I can describe how I'm feeling. It's it's something that gets attached to all sorts of things. But what we've been finding is that it's really a psychological syndrome that is composed of three key elements. One is exhaustion, just feeling like, you know, you don't have the energy, the resources, the whatever to keep moving on and doing things. But it's not just exhaustion, it's actually more important is the second part, which is a really negative, hostile, cynicism, uh, take this job and shove it kind of mentality, which really affects your relationship with your job, with the people at work. You know, it's, uh, I think really the hallmark of burnout is, is that kind of thing. That's where we really begin to see a crisis in people's uh, burnout response. And then the third element is it's not just a negative response to the job and the work and everybody who's involved with it, but it's a negative response to yourself and really beginning to feel what's wrong with me, why can't I handle it, maybe this is a mistake, maybe I shouldn't be here, you know, that kind of thing. And that can lead into depression, obviously, and, and other kinds of problems. So it's the exhaustion, it's the context of your job and and increasingly negative, cynical, hostile response to that, and then the development of this more negative, depressed evaluation of who you are and how you're feeling. 
And do you find that are all of those kind of a requirement for what we would think of as maybe capital B burnout? I think so. You know, I do think that if we're really going to try and be a little bit more clear that we're all on the same page with burnout, that with a capital B, yeah, you'd really want to be able to see all of that. Otherwise, you just talk about a single thing. If you're really tired and, and worn out and exhausted, you don't need to invent another word for that. <laughs> it's exhaustion. And uh, exhaustion has been well-known, well-studied. It's an important element of the stress response. So the fact that burnout includes exhaustion means that it's sort of in the stress camp you know it's a stress mm -hmm. response but what we're finding with burnout is that it's more often a response to kind of chronic everyday often low-level kind of stressors in the workplace and it's just wearing you away it's like an erosion of your soul and you know you start off thinking I can handle this I am doing a good job whatever and after a while I, you know I, I just am not making it anymore and something is wrong and you know hate the job don't want to be here and and all the rest of that. That doesn't lead to great behavior at work. And that's why I think the, the the cynicism, that negative response to the job is such a critical hallmark of burnout because it's really a crisis in your relationship with your job. And what you are doing is shifting how you're doing your work to get through. And so tr rather than people trying to do their very best, they start doing the bare minimum, you know. So, so it sounds like it's this trifecta almost of these three yeah. things and how they, it seems like they're, the way you describe it, it's like almost they feed back on themselves. Like there's a feedback, a negative feedback loop. Sure. Yeah, there can be. And how do you break that or change it so that it doesn't, doesn't get worse? I mean, not everybody goes to, you know, a full-blown stage where all of that stuff is, you know, a major problem, but mm -hmm. some people do and their job performance is not great. They become problematic in terms of their relationships with their colleagues and, and other people. They don't do a great job with customers and clients. Their health, because it is a stress uh, syndrome, their physical health begins to deteriorate and not be very good. You know, they bring the this home. You don't just kind of leave it at the office. And it affects other relationships, friends, family, etc. So it it has a lot of ripple effects. Have you, uh, have you uh, through any part of your research, I guess, found either burnout basically contributing towards depression or vice versa? Or are they just things that like, if you know, when you get to the point of burnout, it makes you maybe more susceptible or, or they just kind of like, I, I'm just kind of curious if you kind of ran into any like correlation between those two. Yeah, there is certainly a correlation, but a correlation doesn't really tell you much in terms about sort of causal factors there. But what we're getting, what we're seeing in the research is that it looks most likely that burnout can be a step on the path toward a real, you know, full-blown clinical depression. Have they, I guess, listed burnout or like occupational exhaustion, I think was the term you mentioned, that listed in like the DSM-5 or anything as like a, a mental illness yet? Or are people working towards being able uh, to have it diagnosed? Yeah. It's an interesting question because it begins to medicalize, uh, in some sense, this kind of response and making it into an illness rather than to a coping with, you know, stress response. And yes, there is a diagnosis that's used in Northern Europe, particularly in the Netherlands and Sweden, you know, the more Nordic countries, and they define it just in terms of exhaustion. So they don't 
bring in a lot of the other stuff, but they, they use it as a diagnosis. And uh, job neurasthenia, you know, it, it, it's called, uh, and it's a mostly exhaustion job related. And they do use it for putting people out on extended leave or out permanently on disability, those kinds of things. At some level, there is a push to do a similar thing in our country and others, but I think there's a huge worry among other people about, well, if we medicalize it and make it a disease and give it a number in DSM-3, uh, we're going to be hit with so many claims you know, of disability and mental illness. <laughs> how are we going to pay for this and, and all the rest of it? And that's a great reason to ignore it, isn't it? <laughs> no. <laughs> well, it's, the question is, I mean, if, if you're diagnosing it as extreme exhaustion, yeah, there's some problems there, and you know what can we do to help people with that? But we may be misdiagnosing it if we leave out the other part that actually is really the sort of critical core of burnout, which is really much more the cynicism, this you know negative response to the job and people, and changing your. I mean, you you no longer have the passion. You don't feel you've got a purpose. It's what's the the point of all this? That's more than just being really tired. I'm curious about something, Dr. Maz, like, can burnout be self-inflicted, and how do you kind of recognize the signs that, you know, an individual is sort of self-inflicting burnout on themselves? How would they self-inflict? I mean, I'm trying to get clear what you're... Um, so, maybe, kind of, there's a term that we use in, in the industry, imposter syndrome, so maybe kind of feeling that they're not good enough at what they do, so they're kind of uh, constantly trying to work more, spend more hours to sort of... You see it with, with hero syndrome too, where it's like, I have to show up and fix this problem when your right. teammates are like, no, we have this, and you're like, no, no, it's got to be me. I've been there. I've been in that yeah. role. Yeah, yeah. I think, I, I see what you're saying. Self-inflicted sounds a little harsh, but anyway. Uh, <laughs> but can people do things in response to what's going on around them in the workplace? in ways that actually put themselves under more pressure and more stress. Uh, yeah, I think that can happen, but it doesn't start there. I mean, usually, you know, we'll see something like the demands of the job are such that, you know, you don't have a normal, normal 40-hour week. You know, it's 50, 60, 80 hours. It's, you know, 24-7. Uh, you can't keep pace after a while. You're exhausted. You're not getting sleep. You're not eating well, all the rest of this stuff. And yet you feel, if I don't do it, I will fail. Or, you know, my job security will be in question. Or I'll I'll let my team down and so forth. So it's not that you start off self-inflicting it. It's really in response to what you're seeing as uh, hurdles, as obstacles, as goals that you're supposed to achieve. And you may be really pushing yourself too hard and running on empty rather than you know really bringing your best game to the job. I wanted to loop back around because one component that you've sort of said is, is really important is this aspect of cynicism. And I, I was kind of laughing when you had said that from the standpoint of, I know a a lot of a lot of us here have a reputation for sort of being cynical on Twitter and and uh, that sort of thing. So right. I, I'm, oh yeah, yeah. Oh, right, right. It's funny. In in some sense, it can be a coping mechanism. I'm curious if there's a good sort of metric uh, between you know healthy cynicism, if there is mm -hmm. such a thing, versus really burnout cynicism yeah. or you know. Yeah. No, that's a good point. Actually, what. I was first observing when I first started this work is that 
the, the shift from people being in a much more positive place about the job and sort of gradually shifting to becoming more negative started off in many cases as a way of coping with, you know, incredible workload and demands and, you know, not enough resources and all of that kind of stuff. And what you do after a while is just saying, this is too much, it's overwhelming, I'm going to cut back. So when I'm dealing with my patients or my clients, uh, I cut back the time that I'm with them. I don't really engage with them. And over time, that might be, not that I just don't engage and I'm just sort of not helpful and friendly as I could be, but I'm being rude and I'm being not attentive and I'm not following up and I'm missing things and I'm making errors. And, you know, you, you blame these people. What's the matter with them? Why can't they get their act together? You know, da, 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 da. And so the, the, the cynicism is in a way starts off as kind of a protective sort of thing. You, you hear things about black humor or gallows humor or the mash, you know, that TV program. Mm -hmm. joking about things like people near death in a way to kind of keep you guys going, you know, that sort of thing. And so there, there can be what we might think of as a more healthy element to that. Does it help us with some humor to get through it, you know, so that we're not getting so beaten up by everything that's happening and what we have to deal with? But the risk that we see is that it keeps getting worse and it can get to the point where the quality of the work you do that affects other people is not good. It reminds me a lot of, and, and I remember when I was sort of, I think, you know, capital B burnout. There's a hopelessness attached with it, where it's kind of like it doesn't matter what I say, it doesn't matter what I do. The organization is it's just going to keep me on this treadmill. I'm stuck. So screw it, right? Just do whatever. Yeah, yeah. And that attitude and that feeling can lead to, and it's not just necessarily my private feeling and I take it home and that's it. What we see is that it leads to, you know, a lot of changes in how you do the job, qualitatively how you do the job. You know, to minimize, to not put out 100% effort, you know, to not really say, I'm going to do the very best I, I possibly can do. If you're going to say, screw it. I mean, it's like, I need just to do enough to get out of here. And, uh, right. Right. I'm curious because you've mentioned this a few times. You talked a lot about resources in terms of like organizational resources that are available to, for people to actually get their job done. Yeah. Um, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the organizational impact or organizational contribution to sort of burnout. What patterns do you see in organizations that like you might be able to go in and say, you know, you probably have some percentage of your workforce that is headed towards burnout because I can just tell by the resources at a higher level when I'm looking at stuff like it, it's that's going to cause burnout. Uh, can you sort of kind of eyeball an organization say, yeah, you're you're this is a, a should be a concern for you or or how uh, does that play itself out? Yeah, yeah, no, it's a, it's an interesting question. The um, resources can be anything that helps you get the job done. So do you have enough time to get the job done? Do you have the materials you need to get the job done? Do you have uh, clear expectations and what the goal is going to look like and you know all this kind of stuff. So it's when there's an imbalance between the demands and the resources that you begin to see risk burnout. What we've been finding in the research is that there are six major areas in the workplace where the degree of fit or balance or match or mismatch is really predictive of burnout if, if the gaps and the imbalances are big or, you know, real engagement if, in fact, they're, they're working pretty well. And so I'll just mention those six, not in any order of importance. In fact, it's almost backwards. But the ones people always think about is workload. 
you know, overload kind of thing, the imbalance between demands and resources. Second area, it has to do with control and that the extent to which you have control, choice, discretion, some say over how you do your work and, and how you get it done. Third area has to do with feedback, reward. Uh, and not just salary benefits kind of reward, recognition turns out to be a really important uh, aspect of that. You do a great job, what happens? Do people notice? Do they care? Do they say anything? The fourth area is one I alluded to before, and this is what we call community, workplace community. So it's all the people that you are in, interacting with in some way or other, you know, your colleagues, your boss, the people you supervise, outside people that you do a lot with, vendors or, or whoever. And are those relationships uh, supportive? Do you have trust? Do you have ability to work together to resolve conflicts, figure out how when we disagree what we're going to do? Or is it a toxic workplace, uh, socially toxic workplace? Fifth area has to do with fairness, uh, whatever the rules are, whatever the policies, you know, that people are being treated fairly and with respect. And the sixth one has to do with values and value conflicts, which can lead to burnout. It's really about meaning and purpose, you know, that really just invigorates, you know, what it is you do and why you're there and why you care. So those six areas, if there are real problematic relationships there, there's a greater risk of burnout. Um, do you feel like once somebody reaches that point with the burnout where they're just angry and cynical, mm -hmm. is there any way for them to reconnect with what they're doing or is it is it pretty much over at that point and there needs to be like a rebirth? Yeah. I mean, can, uh, you, can you rebuild the relationship, say, with your job or is it pretty much just uh, time to go out and find another? Yeah, that's a good question and, and it's burnout is not terminal. I mean, people may feel like that, but... Yes, uh, it can be changed, it can be revived, it can, you know, but it usually means there has to be some sort of changes that take place. So if it just keeps going on and it's not changing, you're not changing, you're feeling stuck and nowhere to go and can't get out of it, then yeah, it's, it's going to be bad enough that you'll feel you want to leave and it could be a good idea to do that and find a better kind of situation, even if it's the same kind of work. But there are strategies that people do use to try and try and identify what some of the issues and problems are and then try and figure out how to cope more effectively with it. And often these involve not just what do I do for me, it's really more of a we kind of thing because your behavior is not often some isolated cell in most cases. You have to deal with other people, work together, use each other for support, you know, or new ideas or constructive criticism or something and it usually takes you know the team or the group or the the unit or whatever to sort of figure out how can we make this better so that we're not at risk for you know this 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 kind of problem yeah. do you find that's the hurdle for teams that you know maybe one person is capital b burnt out and they leave but mm -hmm. nobody really knows it and then another person you know has to take a long vacation or time off or something and they were also burnt out but nobody really knows it and yes. so there's like a cuz you were saying you know the uh, the best way to sort of find solutions is have the group sort yeah. of work realize that is that one of the biggest hurdles to solving this problem that it takes that group realization and that can take a long time and leave a lot of casualties on the field as it were yeah yeah you you raise a, a interesting perspective here because when I first started doing work on burnout, for a lot of people, 
it was a huge stigma. And you it's not something you ever talked about or shared or said anything about if you even knew exactly what it was that was happening. Because it's like, oh my gosh, this is so unprofessional and you know that I hate the job and I hate the people and my clients, you know, drop over the end of the earth for all I care. I mean, this kind of thing. And I think with the discussion around burnout that's been happening, the more people are aware of the fact that this happens and they're not alone. I mean, one of the most surprising things in my early research was when I would go back to wherever the organizations or groups that I had gathered information uh, and said, okay, here's what it looks like. Here's what all of you said. There would be this, you know, 72% of you said, da, 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 and there would be this shock, you know, <gasps> you know, like, I'm the only, no, there's other people, most of you, you know, and so yeah. that kind of stigma and, but also the worry that if people knew that I feel this or that I can't make it or that I'm having these kind of troubles, I'm keeping it secret. I'm keeping it hidden because I don't want to be tossed out and, and whatever. So it, it, it really works against people letting other people know or feeling comfortable enough that they can share with other people that, hey, you know, I'm, I'm going through a rough patch here and, and I, you know, could use some advice or help or something. The other thing is that the, the, the people who did not find burnout a stigma when I was first doing this work were the people who would brag about it. It was like a badge of honor. Oh, my God, I worked so hard. You know, I wasn't at home the whole weekend. I burned out because I gave so much to my job, etc. And it was almost like a terrific thing, you know, show how right. good I am, you know, how much I've given, I, you know, bragging rights kind of right. thing. And the, yeah, the hero syndrome we were the talking heroes, about. Yeah, yeah. And so it's interesting because there would be huge differences between different occupational groups in this who viewed it as a stigma and, and really believed that nobody else but themselves was the only one. It's what we call pluralistic ignorance. You know, like everybody may be experiencing this kind of thing, or at least a mild case of it, let's say, but they're trying to hide it from others. So as you look around, everybody looks confident, and you're trying to be confident and show off that you're confident so nobody will know. But what you don't realize and what nobody else realizes is that every single one of you is hiding behind that mask. And so what you see is everybody else is fine, and I know I'm not, when in fact it's, it's a much larger shared problem that a number of people have. So actually, I'm really curious on some of your research when it comes to the types of industries that burnout kind of exist in. Mm -hmm. the, the thing I think I'm most interested in is like we talk about burnout more and more in technology because uh, the hours can be very long and, and the attachment to projects can be huge. But I have friends who, who are in like banking and who are doctors and lawyers and stuff. And honestly, like the hours they work are far more than what I work. Um, <laughs> and so I'm like really kind of curious, like we definitely talk about here but like as far as I know and maybe I just I'm not in that community that you know I don't hear like my lawyer friends billing 2200 hours a year talking about like burnout it's just kind of like well of course this this is just what we do you know so I'd be I can't, kind of curious like what other industries you've uh, yeah it the there's probably been more work done on burnout and continuously for the last few decades and questions being asked and raised within particularly healthcare. I mean, that's been there for a long time. And yeah, that was actually the other one I was just thinking of now as I was like, oh yeah, you know, doctors too also. Doctors, like, nurses, all of those guys. Yeah, healthcare is a big one. When I first started doing the work where I was finding people who were saying, I got to talk to you about these, this thing, you know, that I'm going through, it was more often what I will call people-oriented jobs, human service kind of jobs. So social services and 
the ministry and teachers and doctors, nurses, et cetera, et cetera, you know, police. And over time, what we were beginning to find is that although that might be, you know, those occupations might represent some more emotional risks because you're dealing with, with patients and you're dealing sometimes with very difficult or serious or challenging things to do and you could be life and death and all the rest of it. So, it, you know, the emotional strain and trauma of dealing with that might be more difficult. But then later we were finding a similar kind of pattern emerging and seeing it when people looked at it in other professions. And so, yeah, I'd start getting a lot of calls from people who worked on Wall Street and, you know, stock traders, or I'd be getting calls from other professions saying, oh my God, you haven't talked about our profession and we deal with visa applications in other countries and let me tell you and you know write these long letters about it you know that that sort of thing I'd, I'd be curious we talked a little about how the you, you in your previous experience you, the group would come to these conclusions when they all were answering these questions they didn't realize that they were they thought they were the, the ones suffering by themselves right. what about from the managers perspective so like I as a people manager myself like I spent a lot of time trying to make sure that my team has enough resources you know are there tools or, or approaches that you think managers should take to make sure that they can identify burnout in individuals before it's too late. Yeah, actually it turns out that a good manager is often able to see, spot these kind of issues and problems in people before anybody else or, you know, a good colleague could do that as well. And to be able to intervene and say, you know, hmm, you're, I've been noticing you've really been withdrawing and, and not being a part of the, the conversations that you seem to be under stress. You know, can we sort of figure out what might be happening? So it's, it's something that I think hasn't been looked at as much as it could in terms of what managers could bring to this in a sort of positive, how do we get to a better place kind of thing. Obviously, there's always the other negative thing that sometimes it's the relationship between the manager and the employees that is going south and, you know, is not working well. But in general, what we find is that if people have good functional relationships with other people, managers, employees, colleagues, etc., it's like money in the bank. It really means that you've got people that you can trust, that you can work with, that you can sort of figure out, hey, do we have some other kind of issue? What do we do about it? Um, but when people get isolated or feel that if they say something, something bad is going to happen to them, so they, they just shut up and not talk about it or look for other you know, options, when they feel like, and we're, we're getting more reports of this now, that you can't trust other people because they're going to throw you under the bus by reporting you to somebody that you wrote something or did something that you shouldn't have done and uh, you're not pulling your weight or whatever. Yeah. Uh, and that totally destroys the, any benefit that other people give to each other who are working. So I would love to ask you about that because that was one one of the experiences that that I sort of had in a in a burnout situation where you know I had posted something on social media and this was quite a while ago and it it was actually a relatively benign thing it was just sort of you know I feel like I'm on a treadmill and I don't know that I understand the organizational goals so I guess I'll just kind of you know stick on the treadmill and da 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 and, and whatever and you know somebody ended up taking that and handing it off to the executive level people and they called me into their office and it then became a huge like thing mm -hmm. um, and and I, and I actually I meant to ask you about this because the 
one of the you were you were talking about how people can cope with this. Mm-hmm. Um, I was actually curious th- that that person that called me into their office had a had a very public open door policy. But what it turned out was they had their open door policy so that they could find out people that weren't on board with the changes they were making. Mm-hmm. And so my my question is is I know for me I almost had for a long time what I could have considered or maybe it, it felt sort of like a a PTSD mm-hmm. response to even the concept of burnout because it was very a very sort of skittish like oh I can't I, I totally got stabbed in the back once by a coworker and I don't even know so I ended up changing environments but then it's all almost like whenever there was a, a tinge of something like cynicism that may not be part of this sort of trifecta that you were talking about I went right back to sort of that place it's kind of yeah. like when you hear how like Marines don't can't do fireworks because, yeah, right, because right. They, they, they they're taken back to that place I'm curious if you have any sort of uh, insight on like how, how do you unravel that? How do you, how do you, I mean, does that, is it just like, well, you, you're going to be paying a therapist a couple hundred bucks an hour for like 20 years. Yeah. I mean, is, yeah. is it, is that the simple answer or is it, are there some other kind of things that you found when you've talked to people that have been through this and come out on the other end? Yeah. I wish I could give you, here's the top 10 things you could do that we know and, and can verify will really make a difference. And unfortunately we can't because organizations and people working in them are really skittish about sharing any of this stuff. So it, it, it even becomes, still, you, you find that even still that, that oh people yeah. are skittish. Yeah. Oh, oh, yeah. Interesting. Oh yeah. And so, yes. I mean, if, if it's really becoming anything in your life, becoming really problematic and interferes with your life at work, at home or whatever, that is causing you depression and grief, anxiety, you know, skittish response, all those kind of things, then yeah, some kind of counseling and therapy is 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 definitely one way to go. Will it take 20 years? I would certainly hope not. It, um, but, some of us uh, are slow learners. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so to the extent that there's still debate about how do you treat burnout and maybe we just consider it depression or we'll wait until it becomes depression and then we'll treat that isn't really sort of a, a, a necessarily a good solution to what you're talking about. People will, this is often when they'll say, I'm going to get out and go to another job. You're raising the possibility. That doesn't necessarily mean you're going to get away from that kind of worry or concern or experience that again in some way. But uh, on the other hand, I do hear from a number of people that, you know, I realize this particular place is not a good place for me to work and I'm, I'm finding something else or a different, you know, kind of organization. How to work with other people around some of these issues is is a real challenge because everybody, again, feels like if I raise it, you know, that I'm kind of branded, you know, as the whiner or the person who can't handle it or et cetera. Right, um, and, I, and I think, too, you see a common concern. There have been discussions on Twitter. Um, actually, Christine Kohler a couple months ago did a very big, you know, she, she kind of, I mean, I, I don't want to diagnose her experience, but she was at Mozilla and, and she kind of left and there were like 200 tweets about her experience there and it very much was sort of kind of like I give zero fucks and here's what happened and it was very interesting to actually read but it was very much that sort of it seemed like it was that that kind of burnout that you're talking about but then it's like you worry that people talk about this publicly and in a very kind of vulnerable way that it not only brands them and maybe in the organization that they were in but any future like people google their name and they find you know this right. twitter conversation or this medium post that's actually something i wanted to ask because you brought it up you you said there's still a stigma around it in How some we... in some cases i mean not 
not always. I think in general, more people are willing to acknowledge that this is happening uh, and that there are challenges and, and, and problems with and even saying, I've experienced burnout more so than they used to. But in some cases, it's still viewed as such a sign of weakness and uh, something wrong with me that I, I don't I don't dare let anybody know what what I'm thinking and what I'm doing. Yeah. So, do you have any tips on how we can kind of collectively, sort of as an industry, start to chip away at that? I mean, is it yeah. as simple as you know, tweeting about it, writing about it, talking about it at conferences? I know you you did a panel at Velocity that was incredibly right. well received on exactly this topic, and I remember that room. Not only was there just you know tweets and feels coming out of that room as as the it was happening, but that room was like standing room only. Yeah. Um, so yeah. hugely important topic. Is it is it that simple, or are there have you found even like with other industries things that like techniques that that start to chip away at the people don't want to talk about it because they're yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, part of it, and and it's interesting you re- mentioned about that conference last year. I mean, the other thing was reading. You know, I was being directed to you know a number of different you know blogs and other other kinds of things where people were talking about this, and particularly. You know, an issue that I was beginning to see more and more coming out within those tech communications uh, was suicide. And, you know, and people, all these, you know, things saying, oh, my God, I remember him and I don't know why, you know, I was shocked. And and then people saying, look, we've, we can't let this happen and we've got to be able to be there. If anybody out there is feeling some kind of thing, I'm here. You know, I'll put my name out, call me, uh, email me, you know, whatever. And so it it's... It seemed like there was beginning to be more recognition of how do we make some of these topics legitimate issues to raise and and talk about. Not necessarily having to start off with a confession on my own, you know part, but how do we kind of normalize it in the sense of it is important. You know, if this is happening and there are people that we you know we're losing and we don't know that and you know we weren't there or we didn't realize that we could have helped or something like this you know can we change that and so I think that's uh, an important issue. Um, Sasha, actually, if you wanted to loop back around to the cynicism thing, I remember your business card used to say the cynicism is free. Sorry, the sarcasm is free. Sarcasm, uh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, and I feel like the, the one thing that is the difference between what you asked her about and what we're talking about when we talk about burnout is that our cynicism is not in response to current events, generally. Our cynicism is a, a response to how we believe people are going to be based on past experience and it doesn't necessarily inform what we're doing right now it just makes us regard the world with wariness right but it doesn't mean we're burned out unless it means we're burned out on life but mm-hmm. I feel like we can be cynical without being unhealthy and I feel like we can certainly be cynical while we are unhealthy as well would you say the difference uh, Sasha that you're, you're kind of, or the distinction you're making just so I understand because that's really interesting kind of an interesting distinction to make so, so like because I'm definitely cynical but a lot of it comes from like, you know, and I know Pete, you and I talk about this all the time where it's like, you know, you're going down, you see your team doing something and you're like, that's going to screw you. That's going to screw you later. So there's like a cynicism there. And, and so a distinction between sort of comments like that versus versus comments like, 
screw Sasha. I like I hate her. Like uh, she always screws up. Where it's it's actually very focused on a specific stimulus. Is that the distinction? Well, but you asked about the fact that we all have reputations for being cynical, which I think mm. is good. But I don't think that our cynicism is poisonous necessarily. I think it's it's a lot of times uh, when we're talking uh, in internally where I work, we refer to it as corporate PTSD. <laughs> I, I call it wisdom. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's the same thing. It's that we know that certain things in the world will, people will react and, and act in certain ways. And I feel like that informs a lot of how we podcast and how we DevOps and things like that. But it doesn't necessarily, it does, it's not part of our day-to-day -day job. I mean, I certainly have job cynicism. I work uh, as part of a sales org. And I mean, my cynicism knows no limits backwards <laughs> as well. And so I have to definitely keep an eye on what that means for me when I'm feeling too cynical. But that's different than how I just look at the world and how we, we have humor about things, right? Right. Like that's... Dr. Maslach, that's a really good point. Do you have any tips? Because, uh, Sasha, you just said something really important. You're like, I, I know that I am prone to be cynical at times, so I need to sort of find a way to keep that in check. Do you do you find, like, that kind of strategy, this sort of self-monitoring, is that a good way on actually all of these things, you know, exhaustion? Right. Is that a good way to sort of self-detect, am I burnt out, as opposed oh, to yeah. just sort of saying, yeah, I'm burnt out or whatever? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, it's not a, you know, none of these things is the total answer, but paying more attention. To call each other out in private chat if we think one of us is being too cynical publicly because yeah. I mean it's just a it's just the nature of the work that we do a lot of the time that we are cynical. Yeah, the cynicism I I think you know when people are using that word and you know before that we were really using things that were more true within say healthcare uh, of depersonalizing other people and treating them badly, you know, treating them like objects rather than human beings. And uh, when you do that, it's it's easier to ignore, be rude, do things you would never do when you're having a conversation with another person because you're not really treating them like a human being. And the cynicism was a way, I think, that the people who came up with that is as a way of sort of broadening that and saying, there, are, even when people aren't in these more human service professions, you can begin to see this slide to this more negative and it's not just cynical it's I also have been using the word hostile I mean people act on it they they get rude and in how they're talking with their colleagues they roll their eyes and drive people crazy you know with like oh I think you're stupid and it conveys that a lack of respect and bullying you know and all of these kinds of things and is anybody you know so it's when that negative response to the job really then leads you to carry yourself and act and treat others in different ways that could be dysfunctional and could be harmful and could lead to bad consequences and retaliation and other sorts of things. Uh, because if you're, you know, you're in a, in a social environment, a lot of reciprocity going back and forth, back and forth with people. Well, I've never seen that with development teams and operations teams ever in my... <clears throat> it's also very demoralizing on your teammates. Yeah. You have to be able to keep a barometer on your own, on your, how you react to things. Yeah. Some some of the stuff you just described, I wouldn't have associated readily with burnout. Like you talked about being a jerk, and and essentially, I would refer to it as like just being a brilliant jerk. Like, and I've seen that happen in our industry, and I've met people, and what I've found is that a lot of times those people aren't burnt out; they're just jerks. They're just jerks. Okay. <laughs> 
Okay. Well, so, well to that that point though, I, I was thinking I was thinking back on experiences, and one of the things as you were talking to Dr. Maslock that I sort of thought of was this was a in a startup context, and it was a, a, a one of the founders was this delightful person to work with, but under certain stimuli would just turn in would turn into you know flip to a, a brilliant jerk. And I'm wondering if that's actually, um, I mean, you could see that, you know, he'd been been with the startup and had founded it for a few years. So when you're working those crazy hours for so long, that that might be an indicator of burnout, that they go from like a totally nice person to a total jerk at the drop of a hat. And and it's inconsistent what that stimulus is. And you're just like, what what did I say? Yeah. Um, do you see that a lot in people that are burnout where they just they kind of like snap in the sure. kind of ways you were talking about at people? and? Oh, yeah, yeah. And and it's often changes in that that leads other people to see that something is going on, you know. But yeah, withdrawal, uh, doing things that are negative and hostile, which keeps people away from you, you know. I mean, uh, if you don't want to be bothered, you can't stand dealing with all of this, you know. Yeah, you do that and, and they'll walk down the other side of the hall and talk to somebody else. So yes, those kind of things can happen. And and what we see with burnout is that again, because it's it's really linked in with with chronic sources of you know of, of stress. It's happening all the time. It's not like oh, it's a big emergency and you know we're under a huge pressure to deal with this emergency and so forth, and then things will go back to normal. This becomes everyday way of working and living, and you don't take it off like you take off a, a jacket, you know, or something, it's in you and you bring it home and you it's, bring it's the it the new normal. And so, I mean, after the, the conference stuff, I, mean, I was hearing from a lot of people saying, oh my God, yeah, I, I become this couch potato and I become this person, you know, who my girlfriend or my boyfriend doesn't want to deal with me anymore because I, you know, I just don't want to go out. I'm tired. I, I've had it up to here. I'm not fun anymore. I'm, I'm irritable. I'm da -da 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 -da. And they're really talking about, you know, it's screwing up other parts of my life as well, the whole thing. And then you begin to think, what's wrong with me that, that I'm getting to this place? So, so I wanted to ask, because you had mentioned a few times that you've heard a bunch of stories at Velocity last year about kind of tech-specific stories. And one of the things I, I actually meant to ask you when you were going through, like, these are kind of the six things you, you mentioned, yeah. sort of the overload, the control, the, the feedback reward is yeah. not there, the community, workplace community fairness, and then sort of value conflicts. I actually thought the value conflicts is one of the biggest ones, because that's a lot of times the hardest thing to talk about. Um, Shanley writes about this a lot in terms of startup and, and the professed value systems versus the actual value systems sort of thing. Um, but my, my question was, I know one of the things in tech that is very stressful for people is sort of the constant change of direction and that often can feel like the constant pivoting to find a market, right, product market fit sort of thing. And that's part of the lore of startups and all this sort of thing. And so this this sort of change of direction, they get the hopelessness from like, no matter what I do, we're going to change it in six months or three months anyway. So I don't even care if I do a good job on this anymore. I'm curious if you noticed any patterns that are kind of specific to the stories you've heard in tech that, that are drivers of burnout that that's, we could sort of ascribe like, you know, I, I've seen this, but it, it seems really either prevalent in tech, the tech industry, or or I've never seen that before. And, and tech was, it's just weird, but it's it's totally a cause of burnout or related to burnout, but but I haven't seen it in healthcare or, or the other industries that you, you've looked at. Yeah, I, I think 
Well, it's you know, I'm I'm not I can't say for sure because I haven't done enough. You work with enough people to really be able to say, you know, how much of a, a clear patterns are we seeing here? Or whatever. We're pulling you into that vortex. We're trying to like We're trying to get us. Okay. Us. <laughs> but I do think there are some parallel things that you'll see in other occupations, other industries. It'll look different given the nature of that. But, you know, there can be some common threads or themes there. And when, you know, you're talking about those kind of value things, this is really, you know, and I, I'm hearing this a lot about losing purpose and, and not finding a lot of meaning that's, that's really, you know, making you feel good about what you're doing in the work you're doing or that you were really have these high hopes and goals to be able to, you know, accomplish some really neat thing, you know, and a variation on a, some product or on an app or, you know, and then you find yourself been shut out or you're not seeing any opening again and it's passed you by or you don't have the opportunity and then it's kind of I mean you look at some of those posts I mean the people talking about just what's my life going to be like now is just programming all the stuff that somebody else decides and determines and you know what's what's the point I mean I you know more to life than this and that meaning that purpose the the thing that really says life is this is an important thing and I'm, I'm making a difference somewhere or whatever you'll see people talking about it in any kind of healthcare human service it's kind of like I went into it because I really thought I'd make a difference in people's lives and, and help them and you know health or teaching kids or you know whatever this is and the job has become one where I can't do that anymore I mean it doesn't happen and it's it's just been stripped out and so the real sort of core value proposition of why I'm here and why I'm doing this What's what is it? There. It's yeah. not there, and I can't find it. And um, so, so, yeah, I think one of the really interesting aspects of tech and of startups is that there's this lore around specifically sort of startups. And part of the whole hiring lore is you'll get rich, you'll get we'll get options, and we'll right. get we'll IPO, we'll get acquired, and it'll be a payday for everyone. And there is starting to be. I mean, there's always been a realization. I think for for people that have done that lottery ticket once or twice, mm -hmm. but a core part of our industry is built on selling people that lottery ticket and, and possibly doing it repeatedly mm -hmm. and yeah. as an industry really hyping that you will win this lottery ticket and mm -hmm. I think that can also help contribute to this if you have done you know uh, growing up in Colorado we used to call it the goat rodeo if you've done this goat rodeo a few times and it's always turned out to be a goat rodeo and not anything else um, yeah. after a while you're kind of like I like how you put that what am I doing with my life yeah what, what's the point yeah I'm curious Dr. Maslach if you've seen any kind of sort of corporate organizations try and get more educated about burnout obviously a lot of these types of companies have training for things like uh, harassment and bullying and that type of thing but I've I've never seen uh, that's the last thing I need is yet another corporate training well I mean okay maybe not corporate training but some sort of education or anything towards recognizing um, burnout and that sort of thing. Uh, yeah, I, I, I know. I, I hear what you're saying, and I, I'm not aware of a lot of programs. There are people, I know there are people out there who are consultants or, or coaches or various kinds of things, and they usually have some particular approach or kind of thing that they are selling and saying this, this will work. Uh, but it's usually the same old, same old stuff that has to do with, with stress and health. 
So it's wellness centers and, you know, be sure you're exercising and getting good nutrition and uh, taking care of yourself, meditating, you know, doing all of these kind of things to, to calm yourself down and relax and make sure you're healthy. And, and there's nothing wrong with that per se. Uh, health is good. But it's not at all clear that any of that has anything to do with actually dealing with burnout. Well, that those solutions don't actually address the organizational systemic exactly. things. Exactly. And so what the other, the second part of that is that Although the research has been showing that it's the, a lot more of what is important for understanding why burnout occurs has to do with the context, you know, the situation, the job environment that people are working in. There are very few attempts that I see where people say, so what is it about this place that we could be doing differently and maybe not putting so much stress and pressure on people that they're not thriving. And what is what is the value stream of stress in our organization? Well, it's um, one of the hard things about stress and certainly about burnout when I started is I would run into CEOs who would say, look, I mean, come on, I'm, I'm running this business. We make widgets and or whatever, and I'm not running a country club. And so people are having a bad day. Well, that's their problem. That's not my problem. And so there's been a, uh, always this focus on it's the individual, uh, he or she is responsible for what they do on the job, for taking care of themselves, and if they're having any problems, too bad, it's their problem. There's really no sort of more responsibility for sort of thinking about are we putting people in the best situation so that we get the best performance and commitment and dedication and innovation and all those good things. That's still the case and all of these these sort of coping strategies and health strategies again are how do you make the person feel stronger, feel better, smarter about how they cope with all of those, you know, stressors and demands and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And there's not really much organized attention at all to, so should we look at the stressors and sort of say, are we, have we got the right kind of workplace here? Could we be doing it in a way that actually promotes people's ability to do the job well rather than not? Um, so it, it's only when it really hits it, an economic bottom line absenteeism, turnover, high health care costs, people out on disability, sick leave, mistakes, all of that kind of thing. When a company that? discovers that nobody actually wants to work there anymore. Yeah. <laughs> nobody of worth, when they can't actually hire anybody of worth anymore. Yeah. yeah. And that's usually way too late, right, for that organization in particular. At, at that point, yeah. It's turn around, but it's, took, it's taken years. Yeah. Uh, what so, struck me is is a lot of the, the and, and I think a lot of us have touched on this too, is that it, it's Yusuf's asking the question, what can an organization do? my view and how I've seen this is like it's so much about culture and what their beliefs are like Paul was saying mm-hmm. um, I, I had a colleague recently who told me that they were super burned out on they're on another team here super mm-hmm. burned out and they went to their manager and told their manager they just don't feel like they're giving the 100% and they're burned out and the manager's like take the month off and you know not everyone's going to be able to do that not everyone company is going to be able to allow that but in that particular case you know that manager recognizes that in order for his team to be effective he needs to have people who are feeling 100% and energized and enthused. Right. Um, and right. for him, when he came back from that month, he came back with a different perspective and attitude. So that would be good if that happens. The other <laughs> thing that happen is that I recognize I, how rare that situation probably is, is in yeah. the industry. But right? you know, we've heard things where people are saying, "Look." Um, we're going to change the way we run the the organization, and anybody can take off anytime they want. If you feel you need to be away, just go away. 
And people have said, I would not dare take them up on that because if I'm not there, I may lose the job. I mean, I don't know what's going to go on. So it, Or it's that's not, that open door policy where it's like, well, let's see who takes advantage of that and then systematically with bad reviews get them out of the organization. Yeah. yeah. You know, Mike, one of the things I also found interesting is that also takes, you know, Dr. Maslick, you were talking about it doesn't matter until it hits the economic bottom line. Right. And, and it's yeah. so interesting because you see that pattern like people – People with deploying continuous delivery, why did we invest in that at all? Well, it's because the site was down for a week because we had a deployment that didn't work and it blew up and we were stuck and 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 the cost was so then so high, right? I hear that story all the time. And what's interesting with Mike's example, it's the realization that if I got rid of that engineer, if I fired them mm -hmm. and had to replace them, mm -hmm. that's an economic impact to, yeah. to the amount of work I can get done. But also, you know, there's that statistic that it takes like how many thousands of dollars to of interview time and, and all of that money to actually get someone on board and then they're not productive for. And that's a cost that that manager in particular feels because the way we end up recruiting it, it's very much, you know, at, at Netflix, it's very much on the manager to hire and retain talent. And so they're responsibility is very localized and so right. they feel that economic cost like Paul said. So it's like if you're burnt out this is totally going to screw me over so let's let's yeah, try to exactly. solve that problem. Exactly. Take a month off because that's cheaper than losing you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So so this has obvi uh, obviously been a great discussion. I think it's a really important discussion. It's one that I think we should as an industry keep keep harping on to have because I think I worry that we lost a little bit of the momentum after certain events spurred us all to sort of really talk about it and bring it up. And so my, my last question for you is from a systematic and kind of industry perspective, what are the things that, that we can do as individuals if we're in a work environment as part of that team you were talking about and building that order? A few simple things that we can just start trying to think about in our daily practice of our jobs to help ourselves with burnout and to help others with burnout and to help the industry get to a place where this is not a stigma, it's not a thing that you use to sort of beat people upside the head with yeah. uh, when they encounter it. Yeah. Well. Uh, <laughs> I can only really sort of speculate on, on what might work and, or things to try or think about. And I would say start taking some initial steps rather than thinking, oh, big solution, you know, kind of thing. But how do we get to a point where I and my colleagues can talk about this? How do we introduce it? We don't have to start with my own personal experience, but other people we know. Do we think we have any issues or problems? What do we think is going on that is, is, is perhaps problematic? Use those six areas as sort of a guide. Do we have something going on, you know, in terms of people feeling that the whole reward recognition thing is just not, it's not there no matter what you do. There's something you still haven't done and you can't win. Or are, have we got some difficulties in, in how we work together and, you know, on the team or use those six as maybe a way to start saying, what have we got that's working well, that's positive, that makes this a good place to work and I'm looking forward to it. And what are the things that maybe aren't quite there? Find out among each other, you know, where there might be some places that you could try something a little different or we come up with a different strategy that we can use among ourselves and, and build on that. I Almost like a roadmap. Get, yeah, it's like trying to get some initial small wins, some positive steps. It may not be everything, but where's our opportunities, you know, to actually make a difference and, and, and try something out and see if it works and see if it makes it, you know, how, how, do, we, how do we handle that? So it's in a sense trying to begin to, it's like turning around a big ship, but I mean, you know, you need to begin to start 
and in, and find a place where okay, this is something you know that we've all sort of identified as among our top five problems or, or pet peeves or something and let's take one of them and sort of figure out if we can come up with a whole bunch of solutions and, and try something different and how would we, etc. And it's making those kind of steps and to the extent that you can begin to do that with other people, it begins to make slight changes in that culture that we're living in and we're living it differently and we're practicing it differently and if we're all complaining about how negative it is and nobody really does any positive things it's not that hard to start figuring out how we can begin to just give a compliment a day to somebody who did something that was actually kind of cool or made me laugh or helped me out or you know whatever how do we begin to make those kind of changes that would make us feel that we enjoy each other that we can trust each other a little better you know or whatever that happens to be so so it's and, and in a way that is sincere, not like corporate. No, you know, Sasha's point: corporately mandated, you thou shalt give a compliment, three yeah, compliments exactly. a day. No, yeah, those gold stars on the wall. No, no. <laughs> but that's what I'm saying: is is that it really has to come from sort of more grassroots. What matters to us, and maybe that kind of thing isn't where our issue is somewhere else, but. Let's identify for ourselves where we think there's something that could actually make this a better place for all of us. And, uh, and we are that place and we can make changes with let's, let's work together to come up with ideas to help each other, you know, move in a, in a different kind of direction. I wouldn't wait for somebody from on high to come in and try and take care of this. You may be waiting a long time. Um, I have one last question for you. I wanted to point people at your books. You've been studying this for a very long time. Right. Uh, Burnout, The Cost of Caring, that was originally printed in 1982, so you've been yeah. looking at this issue for a long time. There's also Banishing Burnout, Six Strategies for Improving Your Relationship with Your Work, and then The Truth About Burnout, How Organizations Cause Personal Stress and What to Do About It. Last question for you. If somebody is struggling with burnout or think they're struggling with burnout or think they know someone's struggling with burnout, which book would you suggest they go out and purchase immediately? Do not, Pasco, do not collect $20. <laughs> go get this book. Yeah. Which of those three is the um, best for it, that kind of... Yeah. If I had to pick one that would work sort of pretty much across the board and is, and people have been responding to it for a long, long time, it would be the truth about burnout, how gotcha. organizations cause personal stress and what to do about it. Awesome. All right. Well, yes, go grab that book if you're dealing with this. Dr. Maslach, it has been a privilege and a pleasure speaking with you this evening. Thank you so much for joining us. Okay. I've enjoyed it. Thank you. And we'll be back in a moment here on The Ship Show. Live with the best time. Welcome back to the Ship Show. So for our last segment tonight, we're doing something we've never done before on the Ship Show. We're going to actually have a little panel discussion uh, among the co-hosts uh, about about the show because episode 60 is actually our final episode ever. We wanted to talk a little bit about why that was and what kind of factored into the decision there. I think um, 
in, in looking at the recent episodes uh, that we've done, of course, we, we hope you've enjoyed them and, and we think they've been great. But uh, one of the things we, we really uh, all pride ourselves on here at the show was was sort of the consistency that we would do them every couple weeks. And, and we know in the last few months that's sort of gone out the window. And I think one of the things um, that people, and especially ops people, uh, struggle with, I know I struggle with it, is that the world changes. And sometimes when we fail to acknowledge that the world uh, has changed, and, and fail to adjust, that's where we get into trouble, where we may not be doing doing our best job or giving things the attention that we should be. It was not a coincidence that we did our burnout episode uh, as the last episode because a lot of times the answer to uh, to the situation is to change jobs or change change up the situation. And so that's what we are doing here. But I wanted to thank all of the co-hosts. Uh, I mean, Yusuf, we were talking about this, and Yusuf and EJ, when we, we started this all the way back, it was like, what, 20, 2012 in July, so yeah, yeah, it's been a long time. Sure has. I remember the test recording we did sitting in my hotel room in San Francisco, feeling that for the, that moment in time, the people I was talking to um, completely understood uh, what it was like to be a professional in this industry. Uh, I've had plenty of developer or manager QA friends over the years, but it's the first time that people have actually worn the same hats as me. Um, yeah, I, I was really, really jazzed. Yeah, and it was. I, it, it's interesting. I go back and listen to those early episodes, and, and um, they're they're interesting to listen to. But I, I think uh, one of the things I always enjoyed, and I hope our audience enjoyed it as well, is we talked about a lot of things that I think for some of the things we were uh, kind of on point. I was actually looking back at at some of the. Um, some of the the show titles and and uh, the one that stood out to me was we did a show uh, on Flowcon called Continuous All the Things and I just went to the RSA conference and and um, this last week and they were talking about how continuous everything is like the thing and so in that regard uh, you know we we uh, talked about uh, we talked about a lot of things I was I wanted to ask the co-host what was your favorite episode or an episode that sticks out uh, in your mind as as one of the more fun ones I think one of my I don't know if I could even call it an episode but my favorite experience was when I was at ChefConf a couple of years ago and I just started listening to the ship show and I'm sitting in like the community room because I was like oh, I gotta get some work done whatever and I, and I heard this voice from behind me <laughs> it was a very unique voice and it, it, was, it was like a voice that I had heard you know every you know whatever a couple of weeks on, on this podcast and I turned around I'm like are, are you Paul Reed <laughs> and, and then and then you were like you know yes like you were equally confused too because I couldn't exactly place it yet but then you had essentially then forced me into doing a very awkward like say a word and I say back the thing. Oh yeah, that end <laughs> segment was a good segment. Yeah, I we had fun with those end segments. You know, the other thing too I realized is that that was a very weird experience for me. And we had this. I I don't know if that was Chef Comp that year or the year before, but it was the year Yusuf you were at Chef Comp and Sasha was there, and uh, we were getting recognized. Like people were recognizing our voices. But what I thought was funny is they wouldn't recognize my voice unless it was something I was very like I was talking very passionately about something and so it was like it was kind of like the flailing arm man you know with the the used car lot with the little air air machine where it's like <laughs> the arms like if I was doing that then you, that's when people would be like I know that voice but if I was just like hey how's it going or whatever people like I don't you know I don't recognize that voice at all so yes yeah I love the blooper segment I mean <laughs> I think uh, we had one blooper segment where I was Saying something about Seth, like Seth, where are you, Seth? Seth <laughs> it was pretty good. It was pretty. Yeah. I, I was gonna say that was the blooper segment was because it was all just 
because it was it was great because it was just like where's Seth, where's Seth, where's Seth, and then the rest of it was just the sound of like ice clinking in a glass. <laughs> yeah, me, you showed me. Like, I'm it here. Really, it was like if if you just listened to the end segment, I was like, wow, that that really in context does sound really bad. <laughs> there's no way to there's no way to actually decontextualize it and be like, oh no, it's probably just taken out of context. It was just it was just a frequent regular reminder that maybe I should you know not have so many drinks. And then I was like, no, nah, that's that can't be true. Well, it's funny. I contextualize what taping is really like, uh, which <laughs> was kind of you know behind the music, behind the podcast. I like that behind behind the music. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Can we get a VH1 program for for our? Uh, we like, ten, like, like ten years, like ten years later, can we get one of those? Like, where are oh, they now? Man. We should do that. Okay, uh, okay. I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm putting yeah. it for now. Just I'm putting it in the calendar appointment right <laughs> yeah, now. Yeah, yeah. There you go. <laughs> I think that my favorite was the live episode that we did at Monitorama in Portland. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It was so fun. I mean, it wasn't even all of us, but it was just so fun to be there, you know, in the same place, in the same time zone, and just, like, talk about this awesome conference that we were all at. Yeah, yeah, that was that was a, a really good one. I enjoyed that one. Yeah, and that we, we had uh, – Jason joined us on the show that time, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah that was a good one. Mike, I can tell you one of the ones I was looking at that I laughed at was the the, the one about testing, and it was the yeah. I, I don't always test in produ- I, I don't always test, but when I do, dot dot dot. But the funny thing about that episode is I screwed up the posting of the podcast file, so there's like multiple MP3s with that name, but different episode numbers because I put it in the RSS feed incorrectly. So it was literally like <laughs> the most ironic. Yeah, exactly. I know. I know. Yeah, yeah. It was. Uh, yeah. Well, I was I was gonna bring that one up because I think it was I had volunteered to to put everything together, and that's when I realized podcasting at like this level is hard because coming up with the whole outline was one thing, but then to then try to actually drive the conversation made me greatly appreciate someone who's good at it. So <laughs> yeah. That was, you know, yeah. It, it, uh, it, it can be, uh, it's, it's lots of times involved. Though one thing I will say we, uh, uh, we always, I think, benefit a little bit from it was the editing. I, I, I used the quote, which is still true. It's for every minute of, of podcast that you hear, it's about six to eight minutes of, of work. So for an hour-long podcast, you're looking at six to eight hours. Um, and, and so that's one thing that we did. But, you know, a full day's work for a, a podcast, we, I think it's worth it, but it's also a heavy investment. One of the things that I was looking back, I was I was looking at our our, our list of episodes, and and I'm probably I'm I'm going to apologize right now uh, in case I miss someone, but I did want to mention like some of the names that we've had on the show, and I think that's one of the things that I have been continually amazed by is is uh, some of the great guests that we've had: Mark Burgess, Sandy Metz, David Edwards, Patrick Dubois, Shanley, Jez Humble, and Jean Kim, Esther Derby, John Esser, Kevin Bear, Jay Bloom. Jason Dixon, Courtney Nash, Ross Clanton, and Heather Mickman, uh, Rajiv Day, Stephen Morosky, Bridget Crumhout, James Dumay, Justin Ryan, Nigel Kirsten, uh, James Creasy, uh, Jason Hand, Mary Thangval, and like I said, I'm, I may be missing uh, a few in there, and if I did, I apologize. But all of our guests have been so gracious in in uh, taking time to to come on the show and talk about uh, their world and what what things are like. So I, I wanted to to thank them, but I also wanted to thank all of you, um, the co-hosts, uh, for taking time to to show up. I know uh, a lot of times that's hard, especially uh, EJ. You were mentioning parenting. I know that uh, we we've had kids come on in the background during shows and, and that's always fun. I think it brings a, uh, an air of reality of what our lives are like into the show but uh, I wanted to thank all of you. 
<laughs> Please don't cut out that giant pause. <laughs> I know. I was just like, I was like, is he done there? Should George need to say something? You should and, say something. And yeah. there's me say, I wanted to thank y'all, and everybody gets a new Hyundai Sonata or something. You get a Sonata. You get a Sonata. Yeah, exactly. I get a Sonata. I don't, I don't know. Just that was, that was the car that was in my mind at the moment. Paul's much more upscale. No, I mean, thank, thank you, but so much, so much of the last like four years or five years of just interacting with the people that the fistful of the people that you ran through in that that list, Paul, but mostly some of these co-hosts here, like the the text messages, the Slack things, where you're like, I'm on my last rope. Uh, I I'm, I'm at the bottom of my rope, and the knots fraying, and I I feel like what we're doing here is some bad. Sh- crazy stuff and then talk to you guys and like okay that this is actually legitimate and this is acceptable for this level of whatever insert here so it's I, legitimate crazy you know, <laughs> I mean, like, seriously I, thank you thank you guys so much and I hope it doesn't end is the uh, the therapy you've all done uh, for me over these years I really really appreciate it yeah similar to similar to what Pete said like I was I was I love the show from the first day I started listening to it I think I even mentioned that I used to mow my lawn back in Virginia sorry back in Virginia um, <laughs> and listen to the ship show and so I was extremely honored to become part of this and I do feel like I was the nail in the coffin so um, you're welcome <laughs> but uh, you know I think this has been one of the greatest experiences I had in a long time and I'm really truly honored to be considered a co-host with with all of you so yeah same I mean except for the mowing the lawn part because I live in New York and I don't have one of those but uh, <laughs> this has been well, I live in California such, now, so I don't have one experience either. so thank you to all of you yeah absolutely I mean I think uh, you know as one of the, the early folks on the show for me it's just been getting to know the diverse set of folks you know, both co-hosts and, and you know people at the various conferences that have uh, that have been at just getting exposed to just everybody and and the, the different backgrounds both technical social and just everything it's, it's been the whole entire experience for me has just been beyond awesome uh, and I, I feel very humbled that I've had this opportunity for the last almost four years to to have the opportunity to, to, to be able to be a part of something like this. I, I would point out real quickly, uh, I think one of the things that has been really great to be on this journey with all of you is to watch also just all the life changes, all the job changes and moving cities and, and all of those things that just happen to be a part of that and uh, where it's relevant to have, have the audience be part of that, you know, see people change jobs. It's been fun. I think a lot of times we, we forget that uh, podcast people or, or media people. I don't want to call us media people, but you know we have lives. And um, oh, don't you ever call me a dirty media person? A media person. <laughs> now, Seth, you're a media whore. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah. No. <laughs> you're like okay. I, please, I tell, please tell me this final episode comes up about 45 minutes short, and you just fill that last remaining 45 minutes with your all the expletives ever issued, or uh... <laughs> it should be all the expletives that you've bleeped out over the years. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Just fill that's it all perfect, with that. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I do okay. have a, I do I'll have get right on that. Wine right here. I mean, I feel like we can make this, we can Challenge make this happen. Accepted. We can fix it. We can fix it. Live. Last day of vacation. Go. Yeah. I think well, one so, thing that, uh, that I definitely am going to miss is the, the rolling meme of me being the expert at whatever company I <laughs> happen to work at. My favorite was uh, working for like a you know email archiving company and then going to a DNS company. And every topic that was DNS related was like, well, Pete, you're the DNS expert. That's true. Saying, Wait, what? And then, and then <laughs> We're talking about question. security, Pete. What do you have like, to say? 
like hey, security Peter, shit. resident security want. person. I was like, wait, wait, I am? Uh, uh, of course. Uh. Yes. I always, I always think of it like one of those newscasters, like in that, like, uh, that whose line is it anyway kind of thing. And and now to Pete with, you know, with expertise on DNS. Like, go. <laughs> well, I do want to uh, also finally thank our audience and our listeners. You have taught, I, I, we've gotten a lot of emails over the years. We, the DevOps Dear Abby segments that we've got, the tweets that we've gotten uh, over the years. We have a very engaged audience, and it's been great kind of getting your feedback. I mean, we've gotten some very pointed feedback, which is great. That's that's important. I think that's part of the healthy discourse on all sorts of things from bleeping words to what Pete said about security, and people thought it was totally wrong. So I think uh, we tried, at least I've tried, and I think the co-hosts, we've all tried to create an environment that moves the discussion forward in a way that uh, may not always be easy, but but is productive. Uh, and I think we've done a good job of that. I think we, we struck a good balance between that. So I wanted to thank our audience. And I would actually uh, invite our audience to tweet us about what your favorite moment or episode was. Uh, I think we would all love to see what those were. And I think it would be a great way to uh, to sort of wind the show down. And of course, who knows what, what will happen. Maybe we'll, you know, do a different, maybe... We'll do a different type of podcast or or something, but uh, um, we're all going to be around uh, in the ether for sure. So maybe something will happen in in that regard. Um, so I love you, man. I love you, man. I love you all. It's getting really dusty in here. You're making me have feels. I know. I just, like, I just who remember... is cutting onions? Who is cutting onions? <laughs> I just remember when Paul and I were on the we were, we went down to the pier or went down to was it the ferry building and we were talking about this we were sitting on a bench eating some fairly tasty San Francisco vegan something. <laughs> it was it was very it was very San Francisco. It was like a beautiful it was like a really nice day. It was I think it was this is probably the Perforce conference where oh, we yeah. first I think this is where this is when you first started having the idea for the the podcast and we talked about it and I just remember that and like that's where I go it's like in my, my like one of my happy places when I'm like that was a really good idea and like kind of how you're talking about like you know things change it's like I was still working in the game industry then I was a yeah. I was a sys admin like a, you know release engineer but like I was class of you know just like how many things have changed in the world and everything and so we just had this special moment because we we were the Perforce fans <laughs> Right, and of course, then the That's other our secret perforce love. Right, the other funny thing. Do you remember, and does anyone else remember that that episode? I don't even remember which one it was, but you thought it'd be a good idea to tape it from a park in Austin, and then like there were drug deals going down behind you, and you're like, ah, it's, don't worry about it. It's fine. <laughs> no, do you remember that? I, I do. I do remember that one. It was, that was Seth, so Seth was going around on his bike with <laughs> his Nexus Seven tablet or something. I don't know. <laughs> Um, there were drug deals going on in the background. But through the magic of editing, you didn't know any of it. <laughs> All right. No, well, no drugs. No drugs are harmed in the making of that episode. Yes. Yes. <laughs> which is very important. All right. Well, I think it's it's time we get to move on for the last the last time. And so, from a appropriately rainy San Francisco, this is uh, Paul Reed signing off. This is E.J. Sermella in Drake, Massachusetts, signing off. This is Yusuf from San Diego, signing off. This is Zeph in Seattle, signing off. This is Pete in uh, Boston, signing off. This is Mike in San Jose, signing off. And this is Catherine in Brooklyn, signing off. And uh, we'll say goodbye to Sasha, too, who could make it tonight. I'm sure she she will also join us in uh, 
signing off. And we will see you all in the uh, Twitter sphere and the internets. Bye. 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 Bye.